Tubernet is, is a robot that you pray to with your hopes and dreams, and you hope that they materialize. For a developer, easy way to get your stuff online. For a security professional, possibly job security. First iterations of KubeCon, there was defining what are we actually selling? What is this thing? How do you talk to your CISO about this? Who is the economic buyer that is gonna put their money where the cloud native mouthpiece is? You also had a huge number of companies that don't exist anymore, mm. that all got acquired, all the platforms ended up in someone else's cloud. I think it was something like two thirds of the sponsors there were security vendors. And I was like, wow, what, this has changed. You know, and uh, you know, that says something about what the concerns of operators are. Take, you know, GCP and IAM policies, a lot of asterisk in there, should not be in there. Only at the tail end of your S3 bucket, that's the only place where you can have an asterisk. Everything else, starts with the word deny and ends with literally that. Policies are hard because they encumber you. They make sure you can ship to production unless you hit certain gates. And nobody likes gatekeeping. I just want to say thank you for all the love you showed Shilpi and I at KubeCon in Amsterdam, as well as RSA in San Francisco over the past couple of weeks. I cannot be grateful enough that you're showing so much love to us. You've supported us to grow on social media and on Spotify and all these podcast platforms. So thank you so much for all the love and support you showed us. Thank you so much for coming and taking selfies with us. And some of you were grateful enough to come on my daily vlog, which I post on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you so much for being part of our life and making it what it is today. All right, let's get through the episode before I get emotional. Hi there. Have you ever wondered what the future of Kubernetes security is in 2023 or how it has evolved from back when it started? In this conversation, it's a panel discussion we had for Cloud Security Meetup Amsterdam. We had... Karim Satorelli from HashiCorp, Matt Jarvis from Sneak, Andrew Martin from Controlplane, and yours truly, yes, that's me. I was moderating and sharing my opinion about how we have seen the Kubernetes security landscape change. Now, I want to give you a warning before my personal audio in the video was a bit hazy, but everyone else could be heard really well, which is probably the most important people in the conversation anyways. I just wanted to say that this was a really interesting conversation with questions from the audience as well, which we've tried repeating. It's a panel discussion that was recorded as part of the Cloud Security Meetup Amsterdam. So thank you everyone who came to support us at the Cloud Security Meetup Amsterdam. It has been running for a few months now and it's growing quite steadily. So if you're listening to this and you're based in Amsterdam, definitely check that out. We are always looking for speakers. Talking about Cloud Security Meetup, we also run Cloud Security Meetup in Melbourne, London, New York, Boston, San Francisco, Seattle, and Austin, Texas. So if you are in one of those regions, definitely feel free to reach out if you want to speak at one of those events, or you would just like us to be participating in one of the events at your end. Definitely join those Cloud Security Meetup. If you don't have one close to your house, definitely reach out to us because we would love to have more hosted all over the world. It's a space where other cloud security advocates or cloud security folks can come in, say hello, and meet other people who work in cloud security. Maybe find a job, maybe find a solution to a problem that they've been facing cloud security. In this panel discussion, we speak about AI. Yes, we spoke about AI in Kubernetes. We also spoke about how it has evolved. We also spoke about the cloud service provider landscape, which is kind of taking over the Kubernetes one, where a lot more people prefer managed Kubernetes over a unmanaged one. However, there are still many scenarios where people still prefer to use unmanaged Kubernetes and how the project space for the open source has grown quite a bit. It's a really robust conversation. I hope you really enjoy this. And if you know someone who's trying to understand the Kubernetes landscape, this is a conversation they would really find valuable from a leadership perspective. These three people are guns in the space of Kubernetes security, keeping an eye on it. So it was really interesting for us to have them over here. They're part of some of the boards as well for CNCF. 
So they had a very unique perspective. And if you know someone who's looking to up their Kubernetes security mindset for 2023, definitely share this with them. And if you're here for the second or third time, definitely give us a follow, subscribe on our audio platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, on our video platform like LinkedIn, YouTube, and anywhere else you find us on the internet. Thank you so much for supporting us. We're really close to hitting 10K on YouTube and probably 20K, you never know. But I appreciate all the support and the love that you showed us. Thank you again, and I will see you in the next episode. Peace. So, Kareem, do you want to start with a little intro about yourself? You Absolutely, are? yeah. So, uh, hi, my name is Kareem. I'm a developer advocate at HashiCorp, where I focus on infrastructure and orchestration. Hi, I'm Andy Martin, founder and CEO of Control Plane. CISO Open UK, where we try and advise the UK government on avoiding foot guns from a legislative perspective, and co-chair at Tag Security, where we try and bring graduating projects through the CNCF to a reasonable security baseline before sending them on their merry way. Foot guns, I like that word. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. I'm Matt Jarvis. I am Director of Developer Relations at a company called Sneak. I'm also a CNCF ambassador, and I am the Vice Chair of Open UK. Awesome. I'm looking forward to having this conversation with all of these people because I think it'd be great. I think to level the playing field for people who don't know much about Kubernetes. How do you guys describe Kubernetes to security folks and non-security folks? So to non-security folks, Kubernetes is a robot that you pray to with your hopes and dreams and you hope that they materialize. I have Tabitha Sable from SIG Security to thank for that definition. To security folks, it is a reimagination of the bin packing and microcosm of Linux. So containers give us a homogeneity, a similarity of runtime across different environments and bundling and isolation. So we have all of our dependencies, we have our namespaces and C groups, and Kubernetes extends that with useful things like service discovery, network management, persistent data management, and some resilience. Generally for security folks, it's mediumly terrifying. So that is a perfect description for a developer easy way to get your stuff online for a security professional, possibly job security. The defaults are geared towards developers and getting your stuff in front of people. It's great. Security is hard. Security is a team sport. You can't just pin it on the security team. If you're in security, thank you for your hard work. If you're not, thank your security team. Yeah, I'll take a slightly different tack because I think Andy's done all the humorous bit there. You know, uh, Kubernetes and you know, other orchestration systems do exist, but you know, this is all about abstracting away the underlying platform that you're running your applications on and providing you an easy way to run applications in an automated way with things like scaling, a redundancy and all that kind of stuff built in. I think that's probably a good segue into, we were saying we had 10,000 people attend KubeCon this year, yep. probably 1,200 in waiting or something. Yeah, it's like really interesting, but cloud-native security is another one that just always debated on because all people feel considering there is a version from AWS, Azure, Google Cloud which is quote-unquote managed Kubernetes, and there's an unmanaged one. How do you describe cloud-native security? It's a definition that I've heard, like multiple versions from multiple people. Curious to know how you all describe yeah, it. That's a good question. I mean, I think cloud-native security, you know, plays a lot in that same kind of space as DevSecOps and all the kind of shift-left stuff that we talk about in terms of when you're effectively running these platforms, what you're aiming for is empowering velocity, empowering change from developers. And so any security kind of constraints that work within that have to be able to cope with 
that kind of rate of change because that's the whole point of running Kubernetes, right? If you just want to run an application, never change it, and you know, Kubernetes is not for you, you know, it's not required. So, so I think security tools that prioritize automation, that prioritize, you know, giving insights to developers all fall into that category. Yeah, to extend that, what we had with the first round of cloud provisioning was a lot of procedural code, looking at chef versus puppet, the whole declarative versus imperative configuration. And people kind of realized that actually all declarative models probably need an escape hatch somewhere because you can't necessarily, and that becomes a sort of higher order templating language in the case of Helm or looking at stuff that Q does. What cloud then brought us was things like cloud formation and Terraform, which then you have that fully declarative and Kubernetes and cloud native then grew on the back of that, really doubled down on what we now have as GitOps, which is everything defined as code. Again, Helm and sort of post-deployment mutation with CRDs do mess with that to some extent. But then what is cloud security when everything is defined declaratively? It becomes a lot of static analysis, it becomes infrastructure shift left. So developers can then know whether they'll hit their admission control entry because Open Gatekeeper will also run in ConfTest and you can run that locally. So yeah, I think the declarative configuration space is a big one. It's also a nightmarish hydra of complexity. And I feel very sorry for people who are entering the industry at this point because I was lucky enough to start with bare metal, get through virtualization, and then you look at something like Google Cloud where you have bare metal running container namespaces around a virtual machine manager that's running a virtual machine that runs Kubernetes inside it with more containers. So it's a strange- Turtles all the way down <laughs> the expression you're looking Painful in set, and yeah, a disk world in nightmarish complexity, perhaps. Oh, what do you think? Things were easier when we had Perl script. Back then, yeah. <laughs> Comparatively, I'm old enough to remember that. I mean, I'm getting there. I'm like, I had early PHP as well. It's, uh, I think, what's happened back then is that I learned that your security can't start, and even now you see it a lot. Cloud native security is great, protect your cluster by all means. But if that's the only protection you have, you are way too late in the process. Y'all make a great product. Protect your code before it even hits your release candidate, before it even hits your deployment pipeline. Because if your code is vulnerable or shitty, then, you know, the best protected cluster doesn't mean anything. You just have a walled garden where the fire is contained within. Doesn't work. I'm curious, because I think someone was saying the last stat that came from KubeCon Valencia was they had 5,000 attendees. This time we had twice the number, 10,000 attendees. And I think next year is in Paris, most likely, I imagine 20,000 attendees. I'm even matching US. I'm assuming it's not the first KubeCon for either one of you. Oh, is it? Is it? Oh, well, the one you remember, maybe? <laughs> wow, yeah. I only missed the first one, and then the second one was in London, and then I followed them around the world since then. Uh, and what do you think has changed? I'm curious, because obviously you guys are, this is my second one, right? I already feel there's so much maturity in conversation, but curious as to what have you found different as you kind of progress with each cube content? There was, I hesitate to be too sort of valley-centric, but there was market annealment going on for the first iterations of KubeCon. There was defining, what are we actually selling? What is this thing? How do you talk to your CISO about this? Who is the economic buyer that is gonna put their money where the cloud native mouthpiece is? You also had a huge number of companies that don't exist anymore, mm. that all got acquired, all the platforms ended up in someone else's cloud, and we're back to a state where there's not very many Kubernetes platforms. There's a few here. And at this point, we see a huge number of traditional vendors who've just, I hesitate to say, jumped on the bandwagon, but they're not cloud native 
native, which seems very gatekeepy of me to say. Yeah, cloud native, native. Might I explain that later? But Matt, go on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know, for when you look at how KubeCon's changed, you really have to look at, at how the world of Kubernetes has changed, right? And the things that we're concerned with now, with a relatively mature, you know, platform. And if you go back to not that long ago, you know. There were many, many things missing in Kubernetes, you know, not least of which that it didn't scale. Back in the early days of KubeCons, most of the internet scale platforms didn't even run Kubernetes. You know, they were all still running Mesos because Mesos could scale to, you know, tens of thousands of nodes. And I think Kubernetes at the time could do some really small number. And a lot of the niceties of, you know, how the internals of it work now took a while to mature. You know, if you look at the kind of companies who are around the ecosystem now, they are mostly focused on add-ons rather than, you know, the kind of the base stuff around the platform because, you know, Kubernetes has matured as a delivery mechanism, you know, to the point where it's clearly running lots and lots of enterprise workloads all over the world. So I think you have to tie those two things together. Yep. You see this in, you know, this is not the first time we've been around this loop either, right? You know, for those with long memories, it's a very similar, you know, kind of a story to the OpenStack world a decade ago, you know, in terms of, of uptake and companies getting involved in it and the change from as an ecosystem matures, how that affects, you know, the kinds of companies that people start around that ecosystem and who the players are. What do you think? I think the biggest change I've seen is maturity, definitely. Yesterday I asked people how many of you are first-timers here. During the keynote, I think we called out 58%, which is insane, right? Yeah. Two-thirds almost of the audience, first time at KubeCon. doesn't mean they're first time to this industry or new in this industry. It just means that they have never been to a KubeCon. If you come back, you'll notice two-thirds of the sponsors and companies in the area will stay the same. One-third constantly rotates. Companies push out a product because it's a lot easier nowadays than it was. And then we find ourselves in a situation half a year later, no runway, that product didn't find a market fit. I think the maturity is definitely there. We're switching more from gimmicks and nice to have to products that we actually need, but they're still add-ons. There's very few that actually solve the really hard problems. I just wanted to jump in there briefly to say like a perfect example, of course, is Vaults, because back in the day, there was no encryption, basically for encoded secrets. And that was the big kind of dirty seat of security. And so you had to strap something on. I mean, obviously, Vault was kind of de facto at that point. But things like that getting brought into core, especially scaling, to your point about... I mean, the start of Vault wasn't even focused as a Kubernetes yeah. product, right? Vault was a, you know, platform independent. And, and it's a strange example, because it's one of the few products that's really kind of transferred from... And it's interesting to say Cloud Native about HashiCorp when Terraform kind of defines everything that sort of intersects very strongly with that. But yeah, very strong point about the scale and actually so many of, a fascinating thing, if anyone's got a sort of machine learning or sentiment analysis background, it's super interesting to see what, oh, you could even see topic tagging, what the topics of the talks have been over the years. Yeah. Because my inclination is there was a lot of pushing the scalability. Yeah. I've just got my 6G or 7G telco running on 10,000 nodes, like, Hold the press, 10,000 <laughs> yeah. nodes. And like you say, like Twitter was running insane scale for many, many moons yeah, yeah. before this even turned up. Well, I mean, I remember one of the last really big OpenStack summits seeing a talk about someone running Kubernetes on top of Mesos, on top of OpenStack. Oh, my God. Which was at the time, you know. The, but you have to remember, this was actually even inside Google. 
that was the, one of the use cases that they thought Kubernetes would have was that as a scheduler for Mesos, not as a kind of standalone thing. I think it was one of the first announcements of it was actually a MesosCon as a scheduler for Mesos. So it's funny how things end up, but I was going to just bring the conversation back around to security again, because I think that's an interesting thing as well. I know you've been banging the security drum for a very long time at KubeCons, but, you know, for a lot of the time, you've been fairly out in the wilderness somewhat, you know, in terms of, I mean, the last KubeCon in North America, I went around and looked at how many security vendors there were in that hall. And I mean, there was just, I think it was something like two thirds of the sponsors there were security vendors. And I was like, wow, what, this has changed. You know, and, uh, you know, that says something about what the concerns of operators are, you know, when you look at, you know, uh, at how that pans out. And clearly, security's moved up from being something that, that wasn't a very major concern to something that's now a, an extremely large concern. Is that still the case today? Like, do you feel the KubeCon space at the moment is primarily filled with, or two-thirds filled with security? I didn't notice it that this as much in this KubeCon, but definitely in North America, I thought it was very heavily skewed towards the security vendor. Yeah, I strongly agree. We're yet to do the beer crawl, or booth crawl, as oh, it's yeah. officially known. The shift that we've seen has been first-generation cloud-native security was, was Docker, right? It was, it was container security. It was people trying to intercept a root-owned daemon. If we are in the Docker group, you can start a privileged container and map the host file system and break into all the namespaces, or whatever. Yeah. Your root on the box, yeah. as an unprivileged user, it's a direct root through. So people were looking at intercepting the socket calls and trying to mess with how the OCI spec uh, has it became. It's pre-OCI. Then the second generation tooling integrated Kubernetes with that, but it was sort of added on. And you see that in the Prisma Cloud offering, the, the way that Aquasec, who were the two like real big players at the time, Sysdig kind of came on as an interesting mutation of the two because they had such a deep introspection uh, of observability and runtime metrics and behaviors. Now we're into a point where we've got stuff that I would say arguably is Kubernetes native and all the appliance vendors have suddenly realized that people aren't shipping boxes to data centers anymore. And I think that was a preponderance of security vendorism in North America. A lot of organizations you wouldn't necessarily associate or think of as cloud native, now see the addressable market is of a certain size and they're probably being told by VCs somewhere, maybe you should start spending money for the Linux Foundation, which is good for us all in some ways. We get nicer and nicer venues. Remains to be seen what Paris is like. Turns out the H and hardware security modules is actually up to interpretation. I mean, that's not a bad thing. More security applied in the right way gets us better applications. I don't want to be woken up at 3 a.m. because we have a security incident. I generally don't want to be woken up at 3 a.m., but definitely not for a security incident because that usually means you have to get more people involved. Operations incident, that's your team, usually. Hopefully not marketing because then you're really screwed up, but we're definitely there. The maturity of the event certainly helps. Yep. The thing that I see is a pattern. When Terraform first came out, we had no good way of dealing with security. So Vault came. When Ansible first came out, Ansible Vault was not a thing right from the get-go. Puppet data bags, was that Puppet? Also not you know, a 1.0 feature. We always went for let's ship shit right now and then figure out security later. You need to hit the ground a few times before you can figure out where to apply the security and what patterns work and what security you need, in my experience. That's a really interesting point because as I was just slating everything that Kubernetes did for the initial suite of launches, A back instead of R back, no network policy, no admission control, 
no pod security policy. What's the other egregious one? Uh, and then no encryption on etcd. And etcd mounted and publicly addressable over the same network. All that good stuff. The, the point is, actually, we've seen all this mad adoption. And it's the second biggest project on GitHub behind the Linux kernel, even properly on GitHub. And it's got all these contributors from all around the world. So actually, it has succeeded. And I've got into all sorts of trouble over the years for saying Kubernetes is not secure by default, which I maintain because operationally, it should have come with some sort of networking. Obviously, everything is all IP tables, but some sort of enforcement, some sort of default policies for admission as well. So it's not secure by default from administration and a usage perspective, but the code base is excellent and it generally always has been very, very few CVs. Do you feel we're at that place now where defaults? Just to repeat the question, Madhu Akla, yeah, thank you, has an open source project based on OWASP GOAT, KubeGOAT, which is basically lots of vulnerable scenarios for default configuration. What happened, I think, is that the space of and everything was built to maximize adoption and to ensure that the project was developer-focused. Security teams, they can figure that, their own stuff out afterwards. Then we had all these platforms that came with some level of security by default. Actually, OpenShift kind of excels as the extreme version of that, but they run in a slightly different way as well by building a project abstraction over the top. So the question of, first of all, what is vanilla Kubernetes to compare that to? Yes. KubeADM by yourself with a low set of flags? No one, no one. some people do that for very specific use cases. But the rest of the time, you're running a managed service yep. and you're using a platform that's already bought a platform. So most things have a reasonable security posture, but still in terms of what you get out of the box, GK Autopilot's pretty locked down. I'd say that's by far the best experience, but you still have to do a reasonable amount of work with most things. I think there's an argument to be made, and I'm not saying that I'm slightly playing devil's advocate here, but you know there is an argument to be made that complex open source projects, which by their nature are designed to be highly configurable, don't necessarily have a requirement to have an opinionated set of defaults, you know, to kind of be fully clear about that. I mean, you know... I agree with some of the sentiment around that, but you know there are lots of people within the open source development world who would say, well, that, that's the responsibility of the packager or the distributor too. But anyway, I'm not going to dig I, anymore I, on I that. I would say, <laughs> I can kind of sometimes draw a parallel between cloud security and cloud native security the same way. I'm going to disagree with you on that point, Ashish, because you know when you're the uh, cloud security, the only parallel there would be if you decided you were going to run a pure vanilla upstream OpenStack cluster, because that's the comparison. Right. You know, if you're buying from AWS, the responsibility line for that basic level of security lies with AWS, right? right? I mean, this is the, the real big important point that I know you talk about a lot as well, is yeah, people understanding where that line of responsibility lies. So if you make that consideration in terms of vanilla upstream Kubernetes, you know, that's not necessarily the responsibility of upstream Kubernetes maintainers to... <laughs> I feel like Andrew's just going to jump from a seat or something. Like, <laughs> but, um, but I'm curious to hear to what you guys said as well. There's a submarine that runs Kubernetes. Like a, it's running in the space. It's like a lot of these high-stake projects are running on Kubernetes. Where do you... Kind of like what happened with Red Hat in the beginning, where it was free and everyone used it. And like suddenly it's like, oh, wait, who supports this? I don't know. Is there a moment coming for that for Kubernetes as well where... Hey, it's open source, CNCF, and 
Well, I mean, I, I think that, that moment's already here, right? I mean, that moment's gone. You know, I suspect the vast majority of people who are consuming Kubernetes are consuming Kubernetes through a service provider of some kind, right? And to be honest, as I made the argument many, many times, you know, unless you are a provider of hosted Kubernetes, there is very little business value, you know, to you running Kubernetes yourself, right? Because where's the business value to your organization in almost every case, 99% of the business value is the application on the end. It's got nothing to yeah. do with, you know, running shiny DevOps platforms and all yeah. that stuff. As much as engineers would love that to be the case, you know, when you look at it purely from a business perspective, yeah, yeah. That's, that, the application is really where. Yeah. And there's something to be said for uh, always maintaining that question of, you know, should I be running this stuff? So I want to briefly come back to the shared responsibility model because I think that's a really interesting one. When you sign up for your AWS account, GCP account, you sign an agreement that obviously nobody reads, but if you do their certification, they quiz you on it. I just renewed mine and it was like, oh yeah, wait, there's a percentage of how much I'm responsible for stuff. AWS's job is to sell more EKS. Yep. Their job is not to sell secure EKS. In fact, and I'm not saying that's what they're doing, I love the platform, but I also love all the other clouds because we're cloud agnostic at HashiCorp. Their idea is sell it slightly insecure because then you can sell other services on top of it. AWS WAF is going to be way better than what's building in a standard Kubernetes distribution because it's tailor-made for it and it applies to your whole network. So as you're running your own cluster, I think it's always important to take the step back and think like, is their goal of running this the same as mine? Are we protecting it the same way? Or is their goal to make sure I spend more with them at the end of the month? And I'm not saying WAF is a bad product. In fact, I'd rather have a WAF accessible in Cube directly because, I mean, the power is amazing. This is my moment of having an angry thing where I'm just like, AWS WAF, I think I have some challenges with it, but I'll let you finish. I mean, which security product does not give us challenge? Right? As a developer, I'd prefer my code to be unencumbered. Uh, I'd prefer my GitHub Actions to always tell me my code is great. My linters disagree with that. That's a great learning opportunity. But I'd rather have that be told upfront before it becomes a security incident. 100%. As you, you know, finish your uh, thoughts on responsibility for cloud and a paid subscription for support for Kubernetes. Yeah, I, I agree. Red Hat is a perfect example because Ultimately, open source provides enterprise value in that you get everything for free. It provides retention for the bleeding edge of next generation developers because the really invested people are going out and fixing things that are broken on their systems. But then the eternal dichotomy for a government or a regulated organization is 3 a.m. Who am I going to call? Well, ideally, the person you've got a support contract with, not your you know tech lead for that project. I do agree we've reached the sort of general unification of everything is supported in some way or another. The number of people that run KubeADM natively, I mean, I can name customers we work with on one hand that do that. They have very specific, very high throughput on-prem use cases. And yeah, so, so, so fair enough. And they're not running OpenShift for whatever reason, because that's almost, it's kind of a rancher or OpenShift question, I think, in my mind at that point, that there isn't too much else, that, one of the three. Uh, although, of course, rancher is now off the table as well, more or less. So. Yeah, I, I think people rely on managed service providers. The ultimate question is whether those fundamental requirements for cloud use cases of elasticity and burstability are applicable to most people who use them. And then you're into a question of, well, how big are you? And at what point do you actually want to start paying for your own data center and systems engineers who will rack and stack stuff? 
because you're spending three, four, five X. I mean, it's your point. Like they want you to spend more money and it's very expensive for what it is. Renting compute is not really very efficient. And at some price point, it just, it blows itself out of the water. And that's pretty comfortable with multi-cluster, single cluster. Everyone's running a single cluster of water. Oh, I, I mean, that question should be based upon a workload sensitivity and the size of your operations team. Because if you can multi-tenant everything and you have a sophisticated team, boom, get your bin packing, save your money that way. If you don't have a sophisticated team, you're going to stress them out, you're going to churn your team, and your business is going to do a lot worse. Everything's business fast. I mean, that's one of the interesting things, I think, about Kubernetes as the original, you know, kind of the holy grail of all of these orchestration things was about resource utilization, right? That's where all these things come from is, you know, back to the sort of internal platforms inside companies like Google and like Facebook about achieving very, very high resource utilization. But in actual fact, you know, through the history of Kubernetes, that isn't what has happened with Kubernetes at all, because, you know, you had this, and partly because of the security boundary idea, right? That people decided that because Kubernetes was lacking some of these hard multi-tenancy things that perhaps you had more in older cloud platforms like OpenStack, that people started to consider the cluster level as being the trust boundary, right? And then you start getting proliferation of clusters. I think it's interesting you would think people run in a single cluster because that is actually the opposite of what certainly, you know, going back over the last four or five years of what I've seen is, you know, the, at one point we did some, some research when I was at Mesosphere and the average was something like 25 clusters, you wow. know, when you counted because... Well, the single cluster thing was coming from AWS and Azure, so those folks yeah. generally push you down the path of running a single cluster because by design to create what you said, it's customized, but they had a limitation that, oh, well, all these things work if you work in one cluster. Can you work in one cluster? Mm. <laughs> but that's kind of where they pushed a lot of people that far. And that's when now they're all starting to ask, hey, what about multiple clusters? Why is that not my boundary? But I think we can keep going off this hour. But I do have one question because we're kind of at the tail end of this as well. People who are listening to this and watching this, what is that one security topic that you wish people are talking more about? Because obviously we've come a long way. We spoke about the maturity. The one everyone hates most, policies. Invest, OPA, yeah, definitely right. start there. Policy as code, make sure you have strong policies. I like to compare it. If you're in front-end development, you run something like CSS lint or JS lint, it's gonna break your heart the first 100 times that you run it because your code is full of crap. That's okay. If your policy engine doesn't break your heart the first 100 times, you were too generous. And a lot of us are like that. Take you know GCP and IAM policies, a lot of asterisk in there. Should not be in there only at the tail end of your S3 bucket. That's the only place where you can have an asterisk. Everything else starts with the word deny and ends with literally that. Policies are hard because they encumber you. They make sure you can ship to production unless you hit certain gates. And nobody likes gatekeeping. I think for me, not necessarily frustrating, but you know, the whole S-bomb thing at the minute, it's a great set of words, but you know, <laughs> other than that, it's like, yes, every tool under the sun can now generate us some JSON. But what does that mean? You know, do I, why should I trust that bit of JSON? What am I supposed to do with this bit of JSON? Now I've got it. So where do I store it? How do I interchange that with other people? I don't think we've answered any of the important questions, which are really about what's the workflow of how we work with these things? You know, we've gone, yes, everyone should have an S-bomb. 
and now every tool under the sun will make you an S-bomb. But, you know, why should you trust an S-bomb that Sneak makes or HashiCorp makes? Ultimately, that brings you back to this whole idea about trust, right? Yeah. We're all into signing everything at the minute, but, you know, somewhere along the line, where's the thing that you've got to lay your stake in the ground? And I think that that plays into the S-bomb thing as well. Very strongly agree. You remind me of another quote from a Six Security lead in Coldwater, which is, we're all made of stars, but your R back shouldn't be. I like it. It's very beautiful. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I, I mean, to your point, absolutely. Software composition is something that we already get by interrogating a package manager. Okay, fine. We also have this whole software composition analysis scanning flow. Why do we suddenly invert our trust model so that we trust not only the software, but also metadata that comes with it instead of providing a verification step? I mean, I, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I guess from my perspective, the thing that I thought would have blown up five years ago and is still sort of sub-conversational is, uh, is workload identity. We're living in a place where zero trust is enabled by identity. And you look at the Beyond Core model and you go back and you say, okay, so first of all, we establish the identity of the calling party. Then we look at metadata about the call. Maybe it's just the time of day. Maybe it's other metadata we know about the IP space it's coming from. Maybe there's layer seven embellishments to the metadata to do with the identity of the person who's making the call from the workload or the machine. And this gives us very, very precise input metadata to our policy, basically. So this seems a no-brainer for me years ago. I also thought service mesh was a no-brainer, so you can tell where I've got a technical deep dive and I forget that actually usage is important. Yeah, so the Spiffy Spire project, I'm the biggest fan. It's federated cross-cloud transportable machine identity. We see now that all the clouds have implemented some form of service identity, whereby metadata about the workload, so... If you're on Linux, maybe it's your process ID and your process name. Maybe it's that simple. If you're in AWS, maybe the attestation relates to your um, Amazon resource number. But it's some form of unique metadata that can be encoded as selectors into an X509 certificate, generates a TLS certificate, and then perform mutual TLS. And then you've got layer 7 identity for, yeah. for any call that you make. And that's where Istio kind of based itself and sort of eventually got to. These principles enable zero trust, not only within a set of machines, but also federating trust between domains. And it is all about trust, really, and how one thinks about it. And then finally, for humans coming in, human comes in, switch your identity, your OAuth token for a JOTS or for an SX509 or whatever it is. So yes, workload identity is where we need to get to to really enable zero trust. S-bombs come from the US Biden ordinances. The other thing you really made me think, sorry, just one final thought. S-bombs went from zero to nothing in about a year. Workload identity has gone from everything, probably down towards nothing in, I mean, Beyond Core paper was, I don't know, 2011, maybe 2013. So it's amazing what a hype cycle does for something, whereas something that's actually really difficult, it gets, I guess, descoped. So probably the same thing people can say with ChatGPD as well. No one cared about AI for so long. Now everything has an answer with the ChatGPD though. I wanted to take a moment. Are there any questions? So just to repeat the question, the failure of workload identity is anchoring the identity to a physical machine and not to something else. Funny you say this. So this is literally the AWS Simple Token Service V1 to V2 migration. So yeah, STS version 1 was linked to the outbound Mac on the AWS fabric. So you make a call and you magically get authentication because your Mac, I call it a Mac, like the SDN Mac is your identity. 
This enables server-side request forgery. All I've got to do is embed a curl call into a misescaped piece of user input from my web application, and boom, I can then hit the metadata API and, and pull back keys, or I can behave on behalf of that service account. The version 2 API requires a specific call with a specific string. So that means that you're no longer reliant, and it also means that a non-root user, for example, can't make that call. The way that Spiffy differentiates itself is that the attestation can relate to an entire node on a VM. It can relate to a container. So it can use, because it's just about what selectors you use. It can relate to a single process. So, so the workload identity enabled by Spiffy is above and beyond what everybody else offers. And the question that I got asked the other day was, why have AWS not adopted Spiffy? Because it allows you to federate via trust domains. And coming back to your point, there are misaligned incentives for the vendor to give you transportability of identity. There's a super cool thing you can do with Kubernetes, OIDC, and Spiffy Auth, where you can basically authenticate cross-cloud by transferring it back. So yes, I agree it's a failure for the STS v1 and that level, but I should have a small Spiffy flag to just wave at this point. So what do you recommend for learning? So let me flip this around for a quick second. If I ask you, how do you deploy a Kubernetes securely? What's going to be your first answer, the first thing that comes to mind? I find with a lot of these questions, people go like, well, it depends. And that's a hard thing with security. If, if I teach you security, I'm taking responsibility for what I'm teaching you. And a lot of companies don't want to be the ones that get called out if things go wrong. We're talking about incentives. I mean, anyone, right? Terraform has the same problem. We give you guidelines, but if you don't use Terraform the way we tell you to, that's on you. And that's important. For us, you should be free to use the tools the way you want. Security education is incredibly hard and it has to be specialized towards your use case for it to be useful. A workshop that will teach you how to build a secure image that you can then run securely is great and it might get you there for 40%. It's not gonna get you there for 100% and that's what's really frustrating because if we embedded more of our security training, I mean, if you've done ComSci, I haven't, I studied media design, which yeah, says everything that you should know about security. We had no security training and our ComSci colleagues also didn't because universities were afraid of thinking about that. We're not teaching our engineers. When you join a company, eh, people are like, eh, security, you know, it's fine. We'll, we'll figure it out as we go along, usually two to three incidents in. Security training, if you can figure out how to do that at scale, you're not going to work a day for the rest of your life five years after you've started because you've printed money, but it's hard. I, so, sorry to jump in. I feel deeply reprehensible and self-loathing in this moment because I'm just going to... The provider of security. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so See Andy afterwards. Yes, precisely. I'm very, very deeply invested in the space. I think your point there about scalability is so key to this. It's the crux of the matter because a good security training is actually just consulting. You need somebody with the breadth and the depth of expertise to answer a range of questions for a range of different use cases. And yes, you need good labs, you need strong... Security champions programs. You yeah. Need, you know, I mean, there's a... There's oh, a then there's the question of, here of how it actually lands. About yeah. organizational transformation. Yeah. This is what's really, you know, when companies have built security practice into their software development life cycle. You know, it's not just about sending developers on a security course or DevOps folks on a security course. In fact, teaching developers and other folks to be security professionals doesn't solve your problem either because, you know, that takes away their real skill, which is developing applications. You know, most of the tooling really is about not requiring folks to be 
security experts, right, by giving you actionable insights into just enough and telling you how to fix it without actually requiring you to deeply understand every CVE. But I would say that the training thing is a recognised issue, which is why the CNCF has already, you know, the associate security training's out of beta today and there's some of us from tag security work at the more advanced exam. So it's definitely recognised within the CNCF ecosystem that more training course need to be available to folks. So, and I think you'll see that happen over the next few months. I think no matter in which part of the operational chain you are, no matter if you're building the image, if you're running it, if you're just building the HTML for it, you're security adjacent. It's a team sport. You have to play in your position and understand what your team is doing to be at the right spot at the right time. I can't hide behind, oh, well, I didn't know that that token was not supposed to go on my GitHub. I could. And then I can wait for the email that at least GitHub will send me, AWS will send me one. And then I can have a chat with a CISO and update my LinkedIn. <laughs> Ultimately, I mean, we've all been there. Like, sorry, I've been there. I don't want to make assumptions here. I do security by learning how to not be secure. And part of that is the shared responsibility model. Yes, we'll quarantine the key that you just leaked. That's great. Until you look at the policy and you realize that that quarantine is not the same quarantine that we had for the pandemic. So it's not isolated. Fun fact, a lot of people don't know, that key prevents you from starting EC2 instances. It's great, right? It's my primary concern is saving money on compute. No, wait. But the policy allows me to delete RDS snapshots. I can create way more havoc for your organization by deleting your RDS snapshots than I can by starting up maybe five more EC2 instances. And I think maybe one something from what it's coming through as well. All the training we're talking about, there will always be an asterisk to it. I think what you find is, as you try doing security, you would find that it's always a snowflake situation, which is just specific to your organization, and no one would have an answer for it. You just have to like work with the other teams to figure out what's our comfortable level with this risk. Like we don't want to leave the door wide open for the internet, but what's that? Like just a little bit of what we can do that would prevent something bad from happening. It's a very normal conversation. We were talking about this yesterday, that some of the expectation that's emerging, particularly as part of the supply chain thing, you know, zero vulnerabilities, are pretty unrealistic. You know, if you set that as a goal in your organization, then you're almost certainly going to fail. Yeah. Because the only piece of code that is fully secure is something that hasn't been written and isn't actually running on a computer, right? I mean, it's just never going to happen. And, you know, as anybody who's actually been responsible for security in production environments know, it's always a trade-off. Yep. It's a trade-off between risk and, and ultimately cost to address risk. Yep. And that's always going to be the case. Awesome, thank you. Any questions before we close off? Yeah, oh, yeah. Before, but... A bit away from security, maybe, but it's still related. How do you approach disaster recovery in Kubernetes, backing it up, especially if the whole infrastructure is deployed with Terraform and you have to keep your Terraform state secure and you need to recover it? But in theory, in modern microservices environments, there is no state, right? <laughs> so why would you ever want to do disaster recovery? Surely we don't have stateful applications anymore, right? Is that a thing? So there's a pattern called Software Factory, which is... It, it's probably 30 years old, but it was revitalized by the US Department of Defense. And the idea is your CI-CD can create itself. So you have this templating mechanism where you can stamp out new environments. And so if you use that, 
then not only can you recreate CICD, but you can also recreate any of your environments so you can recreate production. The way we used to talk about this in government or public sector work was, what do you do if your data center becomes a smoking hole in the ground? So nothing's left at all. And the secondary question is, are you talking disaster recovery for a public cloud or private? Okay, so, so for public, then we expect there's some sharding of data and replication between regions. So we're state becomes somebody else's problem. Let's assume a purely microservices architecture. Then the software factory pattern is basically, you have a USB key with a load of signed container images and a laptop. They both go into a safe in a Faraday cage in a salt mine, two salt mines. You have two-factor authentication, like two phones, two SIM cards. They're over like 40 kilometers is the UK government guidance. The realistic example is just have some redundancy. And then the point is, you take your USB key, you stick it into the laptop, you've got a YubiKey or a GPG authentication of some description. One way of doing this is to then start Minikube on your laptop, deploy Tekton, it's quite a heavy duty question, but, or deploy your containers. They then run Terraform. Your secrets are encrypted on those devices. So you build them locally, you authenticate the cloud, and you start to slowly rebuild your first trusted compute-based environment. This is so much work. So you can take whatever portions of that are sensible, probably at a minimum, Terraform, SOPs for some like YAML encrypted secrets, a YubiKey definitely to have your second factor cryptographic identification, and then whatever form of redundancy is needed. And then you can start to piece it together. Probably still manual steps involved, but that's the way that we've done it for regulated places. Maybe the vendor would like to challenge some of those. I think they're beautiful points and very true. The biggest thing with any process like that, you have to dry run a hundred times before it hits the fan. If you test the first iteration of your playbook for disaster recovery when you have a disaster, it's too late. At that point, my only professional advice would be figure out what your PagerDuty API key is head on over to the Terraform registry, get the PagerDuty provider and update the schedule and remove your name. That's literally the only path forward at that point. And we should point out that this testing and disaster recovery advice has been, you know, we've been talking about this. I've been in this industry for 25 plus years and, you know, people are, are still probably the majority of people not following that advice. DR is a great buzzword. It's hard to implement. People used to struggle with that a lot more. Infrastructure as code made that easier didn't make it frictionless. If you think about, you know, what are the biggest disasters? The biggest disasters in software, you know, smashing a satellite into a meteorite because somebody worked in kilometers and the others worked in miles, that provides context. Everyone screws up, it's okay, you know, screw up in new ways next time and get your disaster plan, plan to be better. So something, I don't know if it's right down here, but Australia has something called Fire I'm sure you have it as well there. For an actual fire, you need to know where you should be going in case of scenario. The same concept with disaster recovery as well, that the intent is you should have, if you know what your crown jewels are or what the important applications you need to have all the time ready, at least as a CISO, this is my previous role, what we did was we had a fire drill once a year for all the important applications that we were running. And it was Terraform, it was cloud, there were all those elements in there. There were few accepted risks, like for example, our code was in GitHub. So for the possibility or the probability that GitHub goes down, AWS goes down, Terraform goes down, it's like, it's like the world's ending. You might as well, what you said, yeah. it's like, walk Just away. Just run away. Yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing that can stop you at that point in time. So that's why we walk down that path. 
So we were just testing our hardware. Okay, assuming I have a scenario where a telephone card goes down. Can I recover? Oh, assuming scenario AWS goes down. Can I recover? Assuming scenario my GitHub goes down. Do I have another way? A two-point YubiKey with the USB and all that. Totally do that as well. Probably a bit extreme. I don't know, but maybe you can totally go down the 40 kilometer path as well. Find a salt mine. That, but definitely depends on the organization. And what you would find is nowadays it's a shared risk with everyone. It's like everyone's using some kind of SaaS provider, like I think we called out already. Even if you're on-premise, you're still using something which is like a SaaS service, most likely. It would, I think there was a stat I read somewhere, uh, they said about most organizations have about over 200 SaaS applications. You just don't realize it. You look around and start seeing, oh yeah, this is SaaS, is my salesforce.com is SaaS, my HR is also SaaS, my all these, oh my, New wellness being whatever software is also SaaS. Like so, you start seeing them around. Like you passed on your risk quite a bit. So the question is: Is ChatGPT a problem, a solution, or a fad? Large language models are very good at reproducing stylistic versions of language, linguistic stylism. And firstly, there's a question about whether, for generalized AI, you can actually represent intelligence truly alphabetically, or in alphanumeric terms. Like, is that actually a thing? Or do we require all the sensory inputs that we have as humans? Maybe one day if we model the neuronal and hormonal interactions of the body as two separate things in their interplay, maybe we get a bit closer. So from that perspective, we're at the beginning of a massive, massive exponential curve. And certainly right now, it's got a lot of promise to go. In terms of on Kubernetes, there is Kubernetes GPT from a Datadog guy. I can't remember. He's, he's quit his job. He's now running that. So you feed in Kubernetes error logs and it just tells you what's wrong, which is nice because it's that stylistic reproduction again. In terms of where it's really useful, it's amplifying and embellishing a human at this point, but it's the confident incorrectness that's the problem. And from that perspective, as a security guy, I would say it's zero tolerance. You can't have somebody overconfidently telling you what to secure, but it is super useful for people with sufficient expertise to identify the missteps. So here's a thought. We struggle training up humans in good security patterns. <laughs> Problem there is we don't have enough educational material. Just looking at the code and determining this is good, this is bad, is almost impossible. You need a ton of context. Without that context somewhere written down, our machines are not going to overtake us in that. So everyone who's in security still will have a job. But like you said, if, if you know your tooling, AI can help you get faster results, especially for the tasks that nobody wants us to focus on, definitely use it. Understand that like, you know, a teenager who just learned like a few concepts, that AI is very confident in thinking that this is the one true solution. And it's not. I tricked myself in that. I had ChatGPT generate some vault policies for me because I was like, I have a talk. I'm too lazy to do that myself. How bad could it be? It took me 15 minutes to look at them. And I was like, something here is not right. And I couldn't figure out what because it looked so correct. I use Vault daily, so I should have been able to determine it. If our trained people are not able to find this, then the input material is faulty, which means the output cannot be good, in my opinion. Security prompt engineers? That's a new job. New job. I think it's a really big question, and I think far too big a question for us to arrive at. I was amazed at Andy's attempt to, uh, to <laughs> summarize the search for generalized intelligence in three sentences. <laughs> mapping neuronal, what was it? Mapping neuronal yeah, pathways. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. No, but I mean, I think it is going to be a transformational tool, absolutely no doubt. We've done a lot of experimentation with it internally in my team at Sneak. 
And, you know, not just from a security perspective, but from an everything perspective. I think anybody who doesn't take the transformational thing of that technology seriously is profoundly wrong. You know, it's going to change every aspect of how we do most things, including writing code. You know, certainly write the content about most things, documentation, all that kind of stuff. So, and we're only just at the tip of the iceberg, right? As things existed for three months, it's certainly within my lifetime. And, you know, I've seen some big transformational technology changes, the internet, you know, Linux, etc. I think this will be far more profound. Whether that is profound, good, profound, bad, who knows. Just another food for thought. We were talking about training earlier, and I think on Cloud Security Podcast, we did a video on how you can use ChatGPT to learn cloud and cloud security. As the concept sounded great, and as we were kind of going through it, kind of the same challenges where, I think you spent 15 minutes, I kind of had the same thing, trying to do an AWS cloud permission dump. And I'm like going, what is wrong with this thing? And you kind of keep asking it the same thing, because they, they teach you that, oh, well, it can help solve the code as well. So you keep, keep giving it back, it keeps coming with a different code. And you're like, okay. At one point, you're like, oh, I'm just gonna write it myself. I just don't really care. But the point being, a lot of people who are going behind the hype of it at the moment are going to use that as Bible and go, oh, this is how I should be writing. And there's literally, what we used to do with Stack Overflow copy-paste is going to be literally ChatGPT copy-paste or whatever the Kubernetes version is or another version. But what security people are also realizing, like I spoke to another CISO, they have started using ChatGPT internally because mm-hmm. they found that a lot of people are finding it useful. But the way they were doing it was they had a proxy in between themselves and the actual ChatGPT because now you can have APIs. And they said, well, their number one concern was the data. Where is this data going? For them, it's like, oh, well, it's only for training that fact that, oh, we have not created something which is malicious as a response. So they store that for a month and after that it's removed. But clearly that's not good enough for Italy, which recently banned it. And it's not good enough for Germany as well, it's going to ban soon as well. So you almost have to kind of, we're at that juncture where I guess cryptocurrency was, where everyone feels very strongly, hey, this is where we should be going, but we haven't figured out what's the right way forward. And the challenge on one side is you can train an entire generation with wrong information and they can just move forward with that because we would not be able to support everyone. I think if you can go on it, you see it. Oh yeah, seems all right, works as well. Maybe security is sought into this, maybe not, but depends on what was fed into it as a model. Well, I mean, that's another good point though, isn't it? This is an entirely new uh, set of jobs in terms of prompt engineering, you know, understanding how to get the right things out of these things. If simplistic prompt to large language models really where you end up getting very bad output from them and you know even in the very short period that people have been using them so far i think there is emerging practices on how to get very high quality outputs out of these to be honest i think most people who work in that field don't actually understand they've got to the point where they don't understand how these models work internally either right you know which is uh, pretty terrifying <laughs> moment. Although I heard from one of the VC funds that the average uh, salary in neural network engineering now is between five and twenty million dollars a year, which twenty is, million dollars a year. It's an incredibly <laughs> niche, incredibly niche, and uh, you know, incredibly competitive field. So, wow. you know, you're going to have all of the biggest players in the world wanting to hire you if you're a top engineer in that. I think I need to find my high school... Uh, I don't think they're going to be hiring you, Ashish. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know how to find my high school notebook and have the neuroscientist <laughs> on it. 
I wonder if, I mean... I don't know how true that is, right? But I mean, but you know... That was kind of like most of the time. I won't take too much of time for everyone. Thank you, everyone, for coming in. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Corinne. Thank you, Matt. It's a really good conversation. Thank you, all of you as well. When you're developing an app, security might be treated as an afterthought. With functionality requirements and tight deadlines, it's easy to accidentally write vulnerable code or use a vulnerable dependency. But Sneak can help you secure your code in real time, so you don't need to slow down to build securely. Develop fast, stay secure. Good developer. Sneak.